I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace of God given to me that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God, for I will not dare speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make Gentiles, the Gentiles, obedient. In mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God from Jerusalem and round about Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Father, thank you for Paul's aim that he speaks of here, that he would preach the gospel in places where your name was not known, where the gospel had not yet gone, and as we stand here more than 2,000 years later, we, Lord, we do so because he and others like him made it their aim to do that. Lord, would you stir in us as we consider that pattern, that you would stir in us that we also would endeavor to reach out to those in our neighborhoods, on the campus that maybe we go to school at, Lord, in the workplace where we're at, wherever we are, that we would be compelled to also bring the gospel to those who don't know you yet. Whether it be right here in North County or to the uttermost parts, Lord, stir our hearts. We thank you that we have been given by your grace. We have been given mercy and grace for salvation. And Lord, freely we have received. Help us to freely give it out to others. Thank you for this text. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you desire through it to transform us by the renewing of our minds that we would be able to show what is your great glorious will in a lost world. Lord, help us to shine as lights in darkness, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people agreed saying, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. As we come here to Romans chapter 15, verse 14 and on, we come to a new section in the book of Romans. In fact, it's the final section of the book of Romans. I know there were some naysayers here who didn't think that we'd ever get through it, but we will. Romans chapters 1 through 11 were focused doctrinally. They were the doctrinal section of the book of Romans. Then chapters 12 through Chapter 15, verse 13, where we ended last time. That's the very practical section of the book of Romans. So the first 11 chapters tell us what we are to believe. The next three and a half chapters inform us how we are to live because our belief should transform our practice. And so 
We have the doctrinal section, the practical section. As we come here to chapter 15, verses 14 and on, this is the very personal section of the book of Romans as Paul is beginning his closing, closing remarks. He says there in verse 14, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren. I am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Now, after more than 9,000 words in the preceding 15 and a half chapters, Paul says to the church there at Rome, I'm confident in you that you are full of goodness, you're filled with all knowledge, and you're able to teach, able to admonish one another, which is interesting after all these exhortations that Paul has given. Much of this letter has been exhortation on what they are to believe and how they are to live. He says, listen, I say all these things knowing that you are filled with goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to admonish one another. And you wonder, why, Paul, why are you saying this at this point? Answer it this way. How many parents here in the room today? Lift your hands up high, parents. Okay, you can put them down. Parents, you know that generally speaking, you are admonishing, that is instructing or exhorting your kids, or you did in the past when they were younger, because they did something they shouldn't have done or didn't do something they were supposed to do, right? So when you read a section of scripture like this that is filled with exhortation about what we are to believe and what we are to do, you kind of wonder, what is it that the church at Rome wasn't doing or was doing that Paul had to speak in this way? And what he's saying here is, this, I'm not saying this because I'm correcting you. It's completely unlike what he wrote to the church at Corinth. Paul's two letters to the Corinthians that we have in the New Testament, they were largely filled with exhortations about what they were to believe and what they were to do, but that was because they weren't doing what they should have been doing, and they were doing things that they should not have been doing, and therefore Paul says, I have to challenge you, I have to rebuke and exhort you, but not so with the church at Rome. The church at Rome, Paul said in Romans chapter 1, was filled with a faith that was spoken of throughout the whole world of that day. And so this was a church that didn't necessarily have the problems that the church at Corinth had. Not that it was a perfect church, but it didn't have the cause for rebuke that the Corinthian church did. So Paul says, I am confident concerning you that you're filled with goodness and filled with knowledge and able to admonish one another. I'm confident concerning you, my brethren. Notice that he calls them my brethren. He'll use those words three times in this section of chapter 15. And it reminds us why Paul was confident in them. What was the basis of his confidence in the people that made up the church there in the city of Rome, a city that he had never visited. Many of the people that were part of that church were people that Paul did not know. However, in our study next time in Romans chapter 16, we'll see that a lot of the people there he did know. But there was a very large group of people at the church at Rome that Paul had no idea who they were, so how could he be confident in these people that he did not know? What was the basis for his confidence? And I suggest to you that the basis for his confidence was that they were brethren. What, what does that mean, though? Well, we're told by the apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Paul in Romans chapter 8 he says that God's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, the children of God. So by grace, through faith, because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, we who put our trust in him, we are made 
the family of God. We who are not a people are now a people because of God's mercy and grace given to us. So even though there are people who are in China or in the Philippines or in Australia who we don't know that are in the church, they believe in Christ, they're our brothers and sisters in the faith. And so Paul says, I have confidence in you, my brethren. His confidence in them was not because of their own intrinsic good because they were upright of heart, and that's what the word goodness here in verse 14 means. It means uprightness of heart and life. It means goodness and kindness. Uh, Paul, he says, I'm confident that you're filled with goodness, not because I know you personally or not because there's anything spectacularly amazing about you, but because Christ is in you. Because Christ is in you. We know that there is nothing in us without God that is good. The prophet Jeremiah informs us of that in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, where he says, the heart of man is desperately wicked. Paul, in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, he said, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, there's a problem that sometimes we face the longer we are followers of Jesus. You see, the longer period of time that goes by that you walk with and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, the longer that you are a Christian and you spend time with other Christians in fellowship, the further you get away from your BC days. How many of you remember your BC days, your before Christ days? How many of you would rather forget your BC days? Some, some of you, yeah. So, but the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you get away from your BC days and the longer you have AD days, right? Some, some people in this church, they're 30 A.D., <laughs> 40 A.D. They've, they've lived a long time from their B.C. days, and they would much rather forget their B.C. days. But something happens in us as we do that, as we walk with Christ. We begin to think that, well, that's not really true about me, that there's none righteous, no, not one. And one of the strange things that happens, the further we get away from our B.C. days, the more we think that we're actually quite good. So we need to be reminded from time to time that if there's anything good in us, it's God in us. Such an important thing to hold on to. If there is anything good in us, it is God in us. And so Paul says, I am confident concerning you, my brethren, because they were in Christ, because Christ was in them, because they were abiding in him and his word abiding in them, therefore Paul could be confident in them. If they were separated from Christ, there's no confidence whatsoever. And so he says, I'm confident concerning you, my brethren, there at Rome. Now, I believe that this confidence that Paul had in the power of God, in the lives of God's people, is the confidence that made it possible for Paul to be able to go into a city like the city of Philippi, where he planted a church and was there only a short period of time, and then he went to the city of Thessalonica where the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that he was there for just three Sabbath days. So he was just there for three weeks. I believe it's this confidence in the power of God resident in the people of God that made it possible for Paul to be able to preach the gospel and then leave and trust that God was able to continue that work. So that Paul would say in Corinthians, I planted and I left. And Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You see, it's this confidence that Paul had in the power of God that made it possible for him to fulfill his part of the work and then let it go and say, God, it's yours. It's your work. 
And so he says to the church there at Rome, I am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are full of goodness and all knowledge and able to admonish one another. I'm not questioning whether or not you can rebuke one another and encourage one another and exhort one another as I have exhorted you in this passage on what to believe and what to do. I'm not concerned that you can't do that. That's not why I'm writing this letter. But look at verse 15. Nevertheless, even though I'm confident, nevertheless, brethren, second time, I have written to you more boldly on some points. Why? As reminding you because of the grace of God given to me. So I've written more boldly. Even though I know that you have the Spirit of God in you, even though I know that you have goodness from God in you and knowledge from God in you, and you're able to admonish and instruct one another, even though that's the case, I've written boldly to you on some points. Why? So as to remind you. The Apostle Peter said much the same thing in 2 Peter. There in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, even though you know them and are established in the present truth. Now, again, parents, lift your hands up high. Look around, all the parents in the room. You know that when your kids were smaller, you didn't only tell them one time. I haven't even got to the punchline. You're already laughing. You didn't only tell them one time those important values or things that you wanted them to remember, right? You had to tell them more than once. Sometimes you had to tell them like in a machine gun fashion, right? <laughs> Look both ways when you cross the street. You didn't just tell them once and then it was like, okay, we're good on that lesson. Let's move to the next one. No, it's like you got to tell them over and over and over again. Though they know it, and are established in the present truth. There are times where we need to be reminded of these things. So Paul says, I know and I have confidence that the people that are there teaching you in Rome, they're teaching you these things, but I'm reminding you. I'm reminding you of these things. Even though, you know, you already know, you may know that you're to love one another, as Jesus said in John chapter 12 and John 50, chapter 15, you may already know you're to love one another as Christ has loved you, but from time to time, we need a reminder to do that. And so Paul, in this section of scripture, has given us practical exhortations about how we are to love one another. We may know because of the teaching that we've received, that there are people within the body of Christ, within the church, that are weaker in the faith, and some who are stronger in the faith. We, we may know that, we may recognize that, but from time to time, we need to be reminded to receive those who are weak in the faith, to not argue with them, but to bear with their weaknesses for their good and for their growth. And so Paul has given us that exhortation. We may know and recognize, because the scriptures tell us, that all human government is ultimately instituted by God, but from time to time we need to be reminded to submit ourselves and subject ourselves to those who are in authority over us. So Paul says, I'm not questioning whether or not you know this, and I'm not even questioning whether or not you're doing these things. I'm not, I'm not rebuking you for not doing it. I'm just saying, I'm reminding you that you need to do this. Why? Well, notice what he says there at the end of verse 15. And the English standard, I'm sorry, the New Living Translation does a good job of translating the end of verse 15 and on into verse 16 as if it was one continuous sentence from the end of verse 15 to the beginning of verse 16, which reads like this. For by God's grace, New Living Translation, I am a special minister messenger from Christ Jesus unto you Gentiles, and I bring the good news so that 
I might present you as an acceptable offering to God made holy by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, I, by the grace of God, am a minister of the gospel. This isn't the only place that Paul has said this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says there, I am what I am by the grace of God, and his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but God's grace within me. So Paul repeatedly in his letters says that I am what I am because of God's grace. He, he didn't become a minister of the gospel because he went to Hebrew U there in Jerusalem or got some special certificate by mail order. That's not why he was what he was. He was what he was because of God's grace. Such an important thing to consider. Now notice here in verse 16 that the good news, that's the Greek word euangelion, which is where we get our word gospel, the good news makes those who receive it acceptable to God by the sanctifying power of God's spirit. That's what verse 15 and 16 tell us. The gospel of God makes those who receive the gospel acceptable to God by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. So what we see here is that our sanctification, our salvation and the ensuing sanctification, that is making us holy, is accomplished by God's gospel and by the power of his spirit. This is important because Every other faith, every other religion flips that around and says that you, by your good deeds, by your obedience, by your works, you make yourself holy and therefore become accepted to God. Every religion says that. You don't believe me? Go take a world religions class. You, you will see every single religion, Islam, Judaism, really when boiled down, that's what it's basically saying, modern Judaism, the, the application of the law. Buddhism, all the other isms that are out there basically say that you, by your works, will make yourself right or holy or achieve some sort of enlightenment and therefore you're accepted to move on to the next stage or come into everlasting life, whatever it may be. But the faith of Christ is different. This is exactly what Paul is saying here, that you and I, we are not made holy and therefore become accepted by our own good works, but Paul says here, it is the gospel that makes us acceptable, and it is the work and power of God's Holy Spirit that makes us holy. Where else do we see that? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then Paul continues in verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, we're new creations in Christ Jesus for good works. So every other faith will flip that around and say, do the good works of verse 10 so that you can obtain the favor of God for salvation in verses 8 and 9, but not the faith of Christ. The faith of Christ says that it is by the power of the gospel, it is by the power of the Spirit that we are made accepted before God and therefore made righteous, made holy. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians? You're in Romans, turn to the right. You'll pass 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. 
Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 5. Paul there says, For though I am absent in the flesh, I'm not with you in body, I'm not there. Though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit. And what am I doing? I'm rejoicing. Why? To see your good order, your good deeds, and that steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So I'm rejoicing. Even though I'm not with you, I've heard about you, and I'm rejoicing because of your good conduct. Verse 6. As you therefore, notice the order of this, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. It doesn't say walk in this way and then you're going to receive the favor of God. No, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Then look at this, verse 8, a, a warning that Paul gives. Colossians 2, 8, beware. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the word, world, and not according to Christ. So what is he warning him? He's saying, listen, you have received Christ by grace through faith. Now walk in him. And don't be seduced by those in the world that will, by the world's tradition, by their empty teaching, their philosophies will tell you that, no, actually, you, it's good that you believe in Jesus, but you also need to be X, Y, Z, whatever it may be. Whether it happened at the church at Galatia and the people came in after Paul preached the gospel and these people were saved by grace through faith, other people came in afterwards and said, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised and you need to observe the Sabbath and the feast days. And there in the city of Colossae, where Paul says, don't let anyone spoil your faith, it was there in that city of Colossae that people came in and said, oh, it's great that you believe that Jesus stuff, but you also need to not touch these sort of things and not taste these sort of things, because if you do, you're, you're not going to be right. And Paul says, no, that's not, it's vain. That will destroy the simplicity that is in Christ. And so Paul here says, you know, the gospel and the power of God's spirit is that which makes us accepted and makes us holy. Look at verse 17 now. Go back to Romans chapter 15, verse 17. Therefore, because of that, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. Because it's all his work, we have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. For, verse 18, I will not dare speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient and mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God so that in Jerusalem and round about Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So he, he says here, I glory only in Christ Jesus, and notice the double negative in verse 18, and I will not, first negative, dare speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished in me. So Paul is essentially saying by a double negative, the only thing I'm going to boast in is the things that God has accomplished in me. That's the only thing I'm going to glory in. The New Living Translation reads it this way, I dare not boast about anything anything except what Christ has done through me. God saves, he sanctifies by his power, through his word, by the working of his Holy Spirit, 
And so we glory in the fact that he accomplishes good things in and through us. It's not us glorying in what we have done. Now, for the last five years nearly, we've been following the the journeys in life of the Apostle Paul. It was in November of 2008 that we began a study in the book of Acts. And now here we are in 2013, and we're not done with the book of Acts. Uh, You know, if Pastor Chuck was doing this, he would have gone Genesis to Revelation in five years. But it's taken me a little while just to get through one book, because we've been detouring. We've been going through all of the New Testament epistles chronologically with the history that is in the book of Acts. So we've gone through James and Galatians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and now we're finishing up Romans. After the first of the year, we're gonna come back to the book of Acts and and then we won't leave anymore. I promise you, we'll stay in the book of Acts till we're done. But during that study, we've been primarily following the life and the ministry of Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul because he dominates the book of Acts and those letters that are written in the New Testament, two-thirds of the New Testament written by him. Paul preached the gospel. He planted churches in Lystra, Iconium, Derbe, Miletus, Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth, Berea, Thessalonica, churches in Smyrna, and Thyatira, and Philadelphia, and all these different places, they they had Paul, his fingerprints all over them. So God used this man in awesome, awesome ways. Not only did he plant churches, but he performed good works, he prophesied, he was persecuted for righteousness sake, and yet he walked in humility, and yet he says, if you and I had the opportunity, of course we don't, but if we had the opportunity to say, Paul, tell us about all the great things that you did, he would say, whoa, wait a minute, I... I didn't do that. God did that. None of these great things that are counted to Paul would he take credit for. He would say, no, that is the work that God did. God did that. You say, wait, Paul, oh, you're so humble. Don't be so modest. Through your ministry, many Gentiles have become obedient to the faith. That that speaks of us here today as well. Through the ministry of Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, many Gentiles have become obedient to the faith. And Paul would say, whoa, 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 whoa. Christ has accomplished through me the preaching of the gospel and these good deeds to bring many to salvation. You say, Paul, don't be so modest. You, through your ministry, have done many mighty signs and wonders. He says, wait a minute. Me, without the power of God, I couldn't do any of those things. You say, Paul, it's so nice that you're so humble, but from Jerusalem all the way to modern-day Albania, the gospel has been preached, Paul says, and he would say to you and I, yes, but that's by the power of the Spirit of God. So the application for us is this. If God accomplishes anything through you, through me, he gets the glory. It's his work. Let me illustrate it like this. Imagine tomorrow you go into the doctor for a checkup, and as you're doing all your blood work and everything, the doctor comes and says, you know, we got some concerns about some of the things that we're seeing. Uh, I want you to go and see this doctor on Wednesday. We're going to set up some more tests. You go see a doctor, and by midday Wednesday, they say, you know, we're really concerned. We want you to go and have an MRI. And so the next morning, Thursday morning, you're there having an MRI, and you come in and you sit down with the doctor, and the doctor brings in an oncologist and say, we're concerned because we see a tumor on this MRI in your abdomen. We're so concerned about it that we're scheduling you for immediate surgery tomorrow morning. So Friday morning, you go in, they wheel you into the operating room, and afterwards, you come out, you're, you're in the recovery room, and you come to, and there's the surgeon. The surgeon says, I want to give you good news. We got it all out. 
didn't find any other cancer there. We got it all. We, we think we've taken care of this issue. Oh, thank you, doctor. Thank, I, I just have one request, doctor. Is it possible that I could see the scalpel that you use to take out the tumor? And doctor looks at you, well, um, I never had that request, but when you recover, if that's what you want, okay. And so uh, a week goes by, and now you're sitting in the surgeon's office. Doctor, I just, I wonder if I could see that scalpel. Yes, well, here it is. And then you take it and you go, thank you. Thank you for saving my life, you wonderful piece of steel. (laughs) Foolishness. It's just an instrument in the master's hand. That's what we are. That's what the Apostle Paul was. Therefore, if God accomplishes anything through you or through me, whether it be salvation, our sanctification, good works, or gospel proclamation, the evangelization of other people, them coming to faith, if God accomplishes anything through you or through me, then it is God who has done it and it is God who should get the glory. You see there in verse 14 of chapter 15, Paul says, I have great confidence. Paul's confidence was not in the believers at Rome. It was Christ's confidence. He was confident in Christ's power to enable him to preach the gospel. He was confident in Christ's ability to perform miracles and signs through him as a vessel. He was confident in Christ's power to save and sanctify those who he preached to. And he was confident in Christ's power to continue to hold them after their salvation. And so the question comes back to you. It comes back to me. What is our confidence in? What is our confidence in? Is our confidence in our own ability to maintain righteousness? Is our confidence in our own power to do good works? Is our confidence in our pastors or some other Christian leader? Because if our confidence is in anything other than Jesus, then it is a misplaced faith. It is a false faith. It is idolatry. You see, idolatry takes on some very interesting forms in our lives. When we come to a place where we, by our standards, by our good works, we think that we are more spiritual than others, then we are idolaters. Even if we go to a Christian church and have a fish sticker on the back of our car. So, Paul Knowing God's power and being confident in him, he made it his aim. Look at verse 20, Romans 15, 20. Knowing God's power, being confident in him, I have made it my aim to preach the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. I have made it my aim to preach the gospel because the gospel is God's power. I have not made it my aim to set up the international teaching and healing ministry of Paul. I've made it my aim to preach the gospel. Notice this, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written from the prophet Isaiah, to whom he, God, was not announced, they shall see, and to those who have not heard, they shall understand. Now, it's hard for us to imagine, but now 2,000 years later, after Paul wrote this, Post-Paul, 2,000 years, there are still 
millions, that is hundreds of millions, even billions of people on the face of the earth that have never heard the name of Christ, never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, have no opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We call them unreached people groups. And if Paul were alive today, I can guarantee you this, he would not be ministering in America. It's just reality. Why? Because he says here, I've made it my aim to preach the gospel where Christ was not named, that I should not build on another man's foundation. Now, note, don't misunderstand, he is not saying that those who are ministering in places where the gospel has already gone are wrong or not doing God's work. He is saying that the ministry to which God had called him was specific. In Acts chapter 9, when he became a follower of Jesus, God said, I have made you an apostle. The Greek word apostelos means one who is sent to the Gentiles, to those who haven't heard. In fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and to those who have not heard, they shall understand. So, Paul is a fulfillment, not the only one, of that prophecy because God said, you're a a sent one, you're a missionary to those who are unreached. The calling that God gave to Paul was to be an ambassador, to be an apostle to the unreached. Paul, if you will, and there's some people in this room today that are gonna really like this illustration. Paul was in a sense like the United States Marine Corps. Any Marines? Oh, God bless you. The United States Marine Corps is an expeditionary unit, an expeditionary force. They go on expeditionary, they go on expeditions to fulfill a mission. And when they go and establish a beachhead, they don't stay there. They don't set up forts. That's the army's job. They don't build up and maintain that ground. They grab the ground and then they move on. They're an expeditionary force. That's what Paul was, and that's what frontier pioneering missionaries are. They go to places where Christ has not been named. Then behind them come in others, long-term missionaries, pastors, to come and make sure, like Paul, when he sent Titus to Crete or sent Timothy to Ephesus, you set up what is lacking, ordain elders, and make sure that church is well taken care of. But Paul's mission was to go where no one had gone before. It's like the starship enterprise of missions to boldly go where the gospel's not gone. Amen? Amen. Now notice this, verse 22. For this reason, because of this, because of my calling, I have been much hindered from coming to you. Even though in Romans chapter one, he said, I long to see you, I wanna come to Rome. But he says, because my task is to bring the gospel where it has not gone yet, I've been hindered from coming to you. Why? Because there was already a church. There was already a Christian witness there in the city of Rome. And so Paul says, although I long to see you, you're further down on my list. Why? Because there were not churches in Asia Minor, and there were no churches in Albania, and so I've gone to those places where the gospel had not gone, and it's hindered me from coming to you because there were great and effective doors open to me where the gospel had not gone. But now, this is one of the most amazing verses of this text. Verse 23, look at this. But now, no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, 
Whenever I journey to Spain, because there's no church in Spain, no Christian witness there, when I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. Now, verse 23 is an amazing verse. What Paul is essentially saying is, there's nowhere left for me to preach the gospel here. I finished the work. That's phenomenal. From Jerusalem all the way to modern-day Albania, Paul says, I can't go anywhere and preach the gospel. I've been kicked out of everywhere that I did. And where they allowed me, the gospel's gone. So he says, when I go to Spain, I'm going to stop and see you. Look at verse 25. But now. Why not now, Paul? Why not go to, why not go to Rome? But now I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Well, wait a minute. There's already a church in Jerusalem. Yes, I'm going to go and minister to the saints. You see, Paul did not think it below him, even though he was called to go to those that were unreached, he did not think it below him to minister to those who were already believers. Now I'm going to Jerusalem. Notice that plans are not unspiritual, but oftentimes God does change plans, which we'll see when we get back to the book of Acts. I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. Why? Verse 26. For it pleased those of the region of Macedonia, that is the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, it pleased those of Macedonia and Achaia, which is where Corinth was, to make a certain financial contribution for the poverty-stricken saints among those at Jerusalem, for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed. Paul says, it was the pleasure of those in the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and Corinth to give financially to help those who are poverty-stricken in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, for they of Macedonia and Achaia, they are their, Jerusalem's, debtors. Why? For if the Gentiles have been partaker of spiritual things from those in Jerusalem, their duty is to minister to them in material things. Therefore, verse 28, when I have performed this, when I'm done, bringing the gift to those at Jerusalem and have sealed to them, the churches of Macedonia and Achaia, when I've sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. I know when I come to you, it's going to be by God's will. Verse 30. So he's just said, this is my plan. I'm letting you know what's happening. I'm in Corinth, I just received this financial gift, I'm going to go and visit the church at Philippi, and then I'm back to Jerusalem to bring the gift to them, and then I'm going to come visit you because I'm on my way to Spain. Now, verse 30, I beg you, I plead you with you, my petition for you in Rome, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, is that you strive, the Greek word can also be translated agonize, that you agonize together with me in prayers to God for me. I beg you that you'd pray for me. Agonize in prayer for me. You say, Paul, Paul, that's rather self-serving. Why do you want me to pray for you? Three reasons. Look at this, verse 31. Number one, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. You say, well, that's kind of an interesting request. Why are you asking that? When Paul was writing these words in the city of Corinth, there were people in Jerusalem that had dispatched a group of men called the Sicarii, the dagger men. They had come to Corinth to find the apostle Paul to assassinate him. 
Their common practice was to come up behind an individual that they were going to kill in a marketplace, crowded marketplace. They would be in their long robes. They would take out a dagger. They would stab that person in the back, and they'd leave him for dead. They were called the dagger men. Paul is in hiding in Corinth at this moment because these guys are seeking for his life. When he leaves Corinth, he actually does it in a very clandestine way. He, he gets his contingent, his posse, his group, there were a lot of them traveling with him, and they take another guy dressed almost like same build, same size as Paul, they dress him up, and these guys get on a boat, and these daggermen, these Sakari, get on the boat with them, and they go out to sea, but Paul leaves a different way by foot. It's like, yeah, 007 Christianity, it's awesome. Secret agent Paul. So he says, number one, pray that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. Number two, pray that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Why is Paul praying this? Well, there in Jerusalem, there were many in the Christian church at Jerusalem that were skeptical of the work that Paul was doing among the Gentiles. And so he goes there very timidly, we'll see this in the book of Acts, seeking that they would accept him even though he was doing something that to them they thought was a concern. Thirdly, that I may come to you, verse 32, with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. That's Paul's threefold prayer. Pray for my deliverance from those that do not believe. Pray for my service to the Jerusalem church that it would be accepted. Pray that I may in the will of God be able to come to you. Verse 33, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And Paul's letter to the church at Rome could essentially end there. We'll see next week his salutation to the members of the church at Rome, which has some very important value. We'll consider that together. Needless to say, this passage of Scripture has great application for us. You see, if God is going to do anything in us or through us and with us, He receives the glory, not us. It's for His namesake, for His glory. To God be the glory great things he has done, right? Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? God, I thank you for your great word towards us, and I ask that you would seal these things in our hearts. Help us, God, to now, as we've considered the example of Paul, and as we've considered your word, your faithfulness, and your power at work in us, God, that you would enable us to go from this place as those who are on mission to carry the gospel to those who don't know it yet. Whether it's here in North County or it's to the uttermost parts, work in us, Lord, that you would be glorified in and through and by our lives to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.